Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure seeing you all. Just feel compelled to thank all of you who serve and minister in various ways, volunteering around here with the worship team and sound and greeting and coffee and cleaning and everything that everyone is doing. So thank you so much for all that. It's a blessing behind the scenes and out in the open to see God's love on display. And thank you for financially contributing by praying, by supporting and encouraging one another and being a light in the world as Jesus shines through you. So praise the Lord for your service and um, may he receive all the honor and praise. And one uh, quick announcement, apologies to those who showed up Friday and it was off, but it's on this week. So yes, uh, the solid youth and the adult study here um, will be happening at 7.30 Friday. So looking forward to that. We're almost done with the study of John. And then, uh, yeah, be excited to see what the Lord leads us to do next. Why don't we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us to draw near to you and to behold you. You are the only, the, the, the holy God, the awesome God, the God of heaven and earth, the one who's created all things and who, by who all things consist. And we thank you that you are our sustainer and provider and protector and you always have us in mind and thank you for looking upon us with such favor and kindness and, and letting us know of our, our sin and our need for repentance and forgiveness and for the, the new life that you've given us through Jesus. And I pray as we read your word today, we would take it to heart, that you would minister, and that we would be receivers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I've seen this very persistent, humanistic assertion that man is basically good, and flaws are a result of an environment or the way you were raised, or what's around you. And since everyone has faults, we have to look for what the source of these faults could be. We have to blame something, right? When something goes wrong, that's something the insurance companies want to know, who's at fault, because that Im impacts who has to pay. So if, there's, if there is a debt, someone needs to pay that. If there's a problem, what's the source of the problem? And if you're a fixer like me, you're thinking about, well, we'll change this or change that, and we'll fix it. But we can blame government, we can blame an economic system, poverty, the nuclear family, some ism, some dysfunctional relationship that's led to a problem. That the real source of it is systemic. It's somewhere else than in the individual. It's so, something beyond the person. It goes deeper. The problem is man's perspective does not take into account that God is good, almighty, he is sovereign, and that we as people have inherent sinfulness, that we are not like God. The revelation of the Bible shows that a man and woman in a perfect environment with a perfect father chose to rebel against God and sin. They disobeyed one command that he gave them, not to eat of that tree. And guess what they did? They ate of that tree. They were given everything they needed to thrive. They had the most loving, supportive father, 
and they rebelled. And we can't blame Adam for our decision to rebel or disobey. And there's, all, there's in us all, as we'll see in this passage, a tendency to blame others or even God. We'll shift the blame onto him to try to justify ourselves rather than owning our sin, saying it's mine and I am guilty and me alone. No caveats. And this chapter, chapter three, it's such a seismic shift in scripture because the first two chapters are God creating the world and that he, he made it good. It was very good. He created all the living things. If you skipped to chapter four, you would wonder like, how did everything go so wrong that people are killing each other? Like, how does this happen? How do we go from this idyllic, perfect place to such brutality and violence? Even as earth and time has a beginning, so did sin that resulted in death. And that's what happens in chapter 3. We read of the fall of mankind. God created a world with mankind in his image who are not God, that he gave the capacity to choose. To choose to obey him, to choose to disobey him. And so before sin was committed, God already had a redemptive plan in place to provide forgiveness and righteousness and new life through himself. Without the fall, there'd be no chance for redemption. There'd be no chance for healing or salvation. And with the freedom of choice came the ability to sin and also the choice to choose God and to fear and obey him. If there was no prohibition, there could not have been obedience. But with mankind plunged into sin, it revealed God's love for us. Because now there was this element of sin that was contrary to God, against God, and yet God showed himself faithful to those whom he loved, to those sinners. And how desperately, it shows us how desperately we need God for life. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. It's been a week or two, but in the first chapter, the previous chapter, God created the first woman out of Adam. He united them as one flesh in the covenant of marriage and they were naked and without shame, clothed in innocence without sin. But let's understand that there's a difference between being innocent and being righteous. Man was innocent, but he wasn't like God as far as um, he was not God because only God is righteous. We read how God created and blessed the cattle, the birds, the beasts of the air. He told them to multiply and and now we're suddenly introduced to a serpent. There's a serpent there. And in our experience, we know that serpents don't talk. They don't really even make a sound, um, much less being able to converse with someone. And as we compare scripture with scripture, we see that there is a being called Satan, also called the devil or Lucifer, uh, that he was an angelic being created by God to serve God, but was lifted up with pride and fell into sin. He wanted to be as God. And because we don't see snakes or animals having the ability to converse with people, we realize something supernatural is at work here. 
And we see Satan's role in the fall of man in the garden alluded to in Revelation 12:9. It says, "So that great serpent was excuse me, that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him." We'll see the tactics that Satan used with Jesus by appealing to his flesh and his desires. He uses those on the woman who we will at next week be calling Eve. Right now, she doesn't even have, she hasn't been named yet. And that's really significant because of what we're going to talk about next week. It's not clear if this was an audible conversation, one that happened in her mind, but the subject of the discussion is most important. There's no reason to believe that what follows is allegorical because the New Testament refers to it as factual, that it actually happened and it's accurate. The serpent said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now God had said you can eat freely from all the trees. Now he's putting it in quite a different way, right? He's pointing out that pro- prohibition. You are limited. You're, something is being withheld from you. God's not giving you everything. He turns it around. And the existence of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the prohibition from eating it showed that they were not God, that they had to answer to God, that he was in charge of them and they were responsible before him. The serpent was crafty. He questioned what God said and then he, he intonated that it was unjust what God was doing. It wasn't right that he was withholding this. The woman acknowledged they were permitted to eat from all trees except the one in the midst. She replied, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. If you were to go back and see the command of God, you'll see that uh, God only spoke of not eating, but the woman added not touching. Satan chose his target well because she had not received the command directly from God, but through Adam. And it's evident that her understanding was not complete or it was inaccurate because one prohibition turned into a second just to be safe. But more rules would not keep them from being sorry later. And this is something we tend to do. Legalism easily enters into when there's a prohibition, when there's a sin, we begin to construct these do's and don'ts to just avoid even getting close to the thing. But it's a great cause of stumbling. It's a great evil to elevate man's word or man's tradition to the level of God's word, right? They're put alongside each other. We shouldn't eat it and we shouldn't touch it. But God hadn't said you should not touch it. He just said you shall not eat it. When touching it did not cause death, she was emboldened even more to eat because she hadn't suffered no ill effect. Genesis 3, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. There's some willingness now to converse with the serpent and Satan then openly opposed God's word. And he accuses God of being a liar, something that the devil is very good at, right? He's the father of lies. He says, well, God's lying. You will not die. Surely not. 
And he claims that God in forbidding that tree was withholding something good from her. And he suggested that God felt threatened, that mankind would be like him, autonomous, without accountability. And he's crafty to mix enough truth with the lie to make it palatable. He says, your eyes will be opened, but they wouldn't be like God. Their eyes would be opened. They would see their own nakedness. They wouldn't be more like God in sin. Fishermen skilled at using a bait to conceal the hook, right? Some sort of edible food that you put there, or at least looks like food, but there's always a hook. There's always a way to snag that fish, to, to catch it. And we as humans, we're naturally curious because there is in us a desire to learn, a capacity to understand and reason. If there's a problem, we want to solve it. If there's a puzzle, we want to work it out. We enjoy exploration and discovery and we want to gratify our senses with whatever captivates us or what looks, feels, or sounds good. If someone's talking about something and they're excited, you're like, I'm interested in this now because how many times have you spoken about a book or a movie or anything and other people are like, oh, well, that sounds good. Like, I want what you're having. I want that feeling that you're describing. I want that excitement that you're talking about. I want that too. So the devil's just dangling that out there. Like you could be wise from this tree. You could be like God. There was only one prohibition in the whole world. That one forbidden tree right in the middle of the garden and it was right in the middle of her mind. The only thing you could think about. Like there's all this that you can partake of. Just one thing you can't. But now the one thing that you can't is the first thing. The only thing. She didn't push back on the claim that God lied. To say that God can lie is a lie. That's always a lie. She looks at the fruit. So she's thinking, well, it looks good. If it makes me wise, how great is that? And who, who wouldn't want to be like God? God is great and good and mighty. Like, why wouldn't you want to be like him? Like kids want to be like their parents. They think their dad's really strong. He may not be the strongest man, but to them, he is strong. He is mighty, right? That was my dad growing up. To me. It's not a bad thing to be like, to want to be like God in character, but it's sinful to aim to be like him in power and authority because if you're like him, then you're above him. You're above all. And you, are ju- you get to sit as judge, even of God. She believed that this was something good for her. Like, it, this is going to benefit me. And it says that in 1 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. She was deceived by the lies of Satan. She was deceived by its delicious appearance. So she touched and she picked the fruit. She broke her own rule. And then she ate of the fruit and she broke God's command. She was deceived it was good for her, and so she offered it to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. Both Adam and his wife sinned, and we don't know if they sinned for the same reason, but it really doesn't matter. She was wanting to be like God. She wanted the wisdom of God, and he wanted to please his wife. He had idolized her instead of having God uh, the one that he served and honored. Now notice, Satan does not pick the fruit for the woman. She didn't, he didn't open her mouth to eat it. He did not make Adam and Eve do anything in this story. 
nor is God to blame for putting Adam in the garden or for making the fruit delicious appearing or uh, because God's never wicked. He has, he's never an accomplice to sin, ever. Turn in your Bibles to James 1, 13 through 15. It explains the process of how sin is conceived within us. How sin occurs when we act on our desires in violation of God's command. And what's alluded to here is we can blame God for our temptation. Because he says, don't let anyone say this. Because what were people saying? They were blaming God. James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. A temptation to disobey does not come from God. It doesn't come from your circumstances or your experiences. It arises within you. Sin is your problem. It is a problem in you. God's not to blame for creating Adam, for putting him in the garden, or for setting up this test of obedience. With every temptation, we read that God makes a way of escape for us that we should be able to bear it. But Satan, having planted that seed of doubt, uh, in God and a desire for herself that was already in the woman, it conceived the sin within her and then she acted out on it by eating, by transgressing God's command. Like, I will touch it and I will eat it. Right? Conscious decisions made that you can see um, borne out. Sin involves a conscious choice to follow our will rather than obedience to God's word. And sometimes we sin without knowing it. But there are times, and those are the ones we should be concerned about, are the ones where we know what sin is and we still choose to do it. Or we justify doing it because the situation warrants it. Or who could have helped it? I used to feel that way about anger, right? An outburst of anger. Like, this bad thing happened. How else am I supposed to react? Well, how about like Jesus, who opened not his mouth when he was being punished for the sins of the world. How unjust was that? The fall of man, it mirrors the fall of Satan or Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregations of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan's will, it rose up in his heart to say, I am going to be like God. I am going to rule like him. I am going to sit in judgment over him. I will ascend above him. And he was cast down. The fall of Satan did not mean that man had to fall, but God knew man would. The introduction of one prohibition, it meant sin was inevitable for man because though innocent, man is not righteous as God is. And if you have A or B, if we all just, without any consequence, I said, okay, do you choose A or B? We, we wouldn't all choose A. We wouldn't all choose B. There would be a mix. 
So when there's choice introduced, some people will not choose God's way. And God knew that. Man created in God's likeness was not God. There would, therefore would fall short of his righteousness and glory because that's not in us. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Their eyes were open, just like the serpent had said. But instead of having all the knowledge of God, they were acutely aware of their own nakedness, their vulnerability, their guilt. God warned them, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And though their bodies continued to live, their eternal souls were dead that day, separated, cut off from God in sin. I liked what McGee wrote in his commentary through the Bible. He wrote, Physical death is a separation of the person, the spirit, the soul from the body. Adam died spiritually the moment he disobeyed. He was separated from God. Death is separation. God is spirit. Man is made in the image of God. We have a soul, an eternal soul. And people these days are really into seeking and discovering, and really from all history, into discovering our identity and expressing it. But when you do that without knowing God personally, you always settle for the superficial rather than the eternal. But God's put eternity in our hearts. Adam and his wife, they sinned and became cognizant of their nakedness. It says they sewed together fig leaves as coverings. They didn't cover up because of social pressure or because they were embarrassed of their bodies, but they were overwhelmed. They were afraid and so they covered up to try to hide from God who sees all things. Now, we can see in them a bit of a family resemblance, right? When we recognize that we've done the wrong thing, that we are guilty, we try to hide our sin. We're not upfront about it. We want to hide it. We're shamed by it. And it does us no good to criticize or mock Adam or his wife, for we fall into that snare. Disobedience to God or our parents or anyone feelings of guilt, and then trying in vain to hide what we've done as if he doesn't know. We could be like that little child who's gotten into the chocolate and, and they're eating it and it's melty and they've got it on their mouth and on their hands. It's just kind of getting everywhere and then mom goes, hey, who got in the chocolate? And the kid puts on his best innocent face like, what is chocolate? Like, does that, is that a thing? Does that even exist? And it's like, it's all over you. You know exactly what it is. Your innocent face doesn't change anything. It doesn't remove your guilt. Adam and his wife, they knew without being told their nakedness needed a covering and they pulled green leaves off of a fig tree that died the instant they were plucked, but they would stay green for a while and they, they were still flexible and they made these aprons and coverings with them. And it was really a similar thing that happened spiritually when they sinned. They had been plucked. They had been separated from God by their sin, the source of their life. And their bodies would grow. So they they had died at that moment spiritually. And their bodies would wax older and older. And those those coverings would grow dry and brittle and brown and fall and turn to dust like they would. They too would turn to dust 
because they had been separated from God who was their life. From the fall, we have tried to cover our own sinfulness and guilt with our own works, by religion, by excuses, but it can't fix our spiritual problem because we have been separated from God by our sin. Man's reaction to sin is not often, what have I done, but what can I do? And we try to cover up. We try to hide the fact that we're sinners and that we're guilty before a holy God. And forgiveness and spiritual regeneration and life, it's not found in tradition, investments, and incense, philosophy, or elaborate rituals. What guilty sinners need is a connection with God again. To be forgiven, to be justified, to have our sins atoned for through the blood of Christ. And God purposed to provide this through the gospel. When Adam and his wife, they heard God walking through the garden at the cool of the day, it's evident that he didn't immediately confront them, right? So it's not like, you know, your kids are up to no good and you're like, just by the door, go, hmm. they were supposed to be in bed. They're obviously not in bed. So I'm going to catch them in the act. And you fling that door open. You're like, where, what are you guys supposed to be doing? And they're like, ah, you're kind of running around and I just need to go to the bathroom or whatever. But God waited. He let them eat. He let them decide, what are we going to do? Okay, well, let's cover up. So they're making these, you know, little art. Art has happened. And they're putting on these coverings. And, and then God comes at that appointed time. And they hear him. And they're hiding in the trees. I strongly suspect every single time that God had walked through the garden, Adam bounded to see him. Like a child when his dad gets home from work or mom is home from a trip or the puppy when it's dinner time. They would have run to him. But today, where's Adam? He's not there. What a tragedy. What an awful thing happened. Where God is like, where are you? You've always been here. Made in my image. The one who's like me of everything. Where are you? Imagine God's sorrow when someone he created in his own image was separated from him and wanted to hide from him when he came walking among them. Adam was truly lost. He was lost from his maker and more terrible still, his maker had lost him. And he was very alone. He, he was lost more than he could know. They had no idea how lost they were. He wasn't lost in a garden for a few minutes. He was cut off from God for all eternity by his own sin. God was offended. God was wounded. But he called out to Adam like a good shepherd seeking his lost sheep. The spiritual connection was broken, but he had been made in the image of God. God loved him. He loved his wife and he would see them restored to him in due time. And God showed great love and grace to go where Adam was. He didn't just wipe him off the planet. He went to him. He called out to him. We imagine that when we sin, God gives us a silent treatment. It's not the case. God speaks. The one who gave us tongues, he speaks. And he called out. The question is, will you answer when he says, where are you? Where are you? 
Adam responded, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He answers his voice and says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. Adam says nothing about his sin. He doesn't volunteer the fact that he had eaten of the forbidden fruit, that he had disobeyed. He admitted a reason why he was hiding without confessing the real reason he was hiding. Again, an uncanny, uncanny family resemblance we see here with him. We share this with the first man created. We think we can conceal the grim reality of our sin from God. We think he doesn't see or know. Like he, he just, we can just say whatever and, and he's not aware of it. Like this is God who created us, right? And as sinners, we are full of fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of being alone or being unheard. Fear of trouble. Fear of failure. Fear of poverty. Fear of, fear of rejection. Fear of being found out. Fear of shame. Fear of death. Right? Beset by all kinds of fear and anxieties because of sin. And often these fears are stirred by that hearty sin of pride that resists God, that puts ourselves and feelings and desires above God. Like, why, like logically, why would we cover up or lie about what's working to destroy us by separating us from God? What logically, like how is that sustainable in any way that we would, that someone who is deathly ill would conceal their symptoms or their source of illness from the doctor who's wanting to help them? I remember being convicted as a year eight student. My friend on the playground, he made a rude gesture at me and I returned it quite happily. And uh, only to see him turn and run to the coach to dob me in. So I was pretty like, oh, oh my goodness. So I got called over and I was asked very plainly, what did you do? And I said, oh yes, I made a gesture, not the one that is so offensive, of course. I made another gesture. Maybe he couldn't see it from that distance. And thinking at the moment, I don't want to implicate my friend. I also don't want to get in trouble. And so, you know, there's just all this wrangling in your mind and conflict and fear. And I lied. I just lied. I was unwilling to say in that moment, I did that and I am sorry. And I was unwilling to go to my friend because I was mad at him for his betrayal. And I was given an opportunity by God to be truthful and honest about what I had done. Yet I added to my sin by lying about it. I ignored that warning and promise of mercy from God we read in Proverbs 28, 13. It says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You would think that such a minor incident 33 years ago would be easily forgotten, but I remember it so well. God was gracious to convict me of that. We've all been guilty of lying. We've all been guilty of giving evasive answers and lame excuses that sound a lot like Adam that we can't blame him for. I knew it was wrong to lie. I lied to cover it up, and now I'm telling you the truth. And I can speak of it without guilt because Jesus has atoned for my sin and he has forgiven me. He has washed me clean. 
And for that, I am eternally grateful. And we can learn from something that happened so long ago and say, I'm going to speak the truth. God help me. Genesis 3, 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked and hid. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I told you not to? Knowing all things. Now, a couple of observations. Even though Adam was not first to sin, he's the first to be addressed by God. He's responsible as head of his wife. God gave his command to Adam. And he was uh, responsible to uphold that command. He was accountable to God. There was no loophole or gray area in God's commands. Not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. So we, we can't dodge that, right? We can't dodge culpability because man is a master of seeking to dodge culpability by arguing, well, that tree is more, you know, properly called a bush. Uh, the fruit, it has more the appearance of a vegetable than a fruit, right? I mean, come on, it doesn't look like a fruit at all. Or tasting does not necessarily constitute eating. We can debate about that. Did you really eat? Well, I just tasted. Mm. Right? So we're blamed, just shifting, dodging, like the matrix. We just will not let anything land. Notice also that God does not ask, why did you do this? Because there's no acceptable answer to disobedience to God. It doesn't matter why. Did you do it? That's what God wanted to know. There's no way to justify disobedience before God. And God already knew the answer. Matthew Henry said this, Though God knows all our sins, yet he will know them from us and requires from us an ingenious com confession of them that he may be informed, not that he may be informed, but that we may be humbled. So God is giving him an opportunity to spell out what he has done. He's not going to put words in his mouth. He is going to say, did you do this? To humble them to make them realize, like, yeah, I have sinned. Adam didn't say that. He responded, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. So he shifts the blame for his sin upon his wife, and then also to God for giving him his wife. <laughs> wow. Again, uncanny family resemblance. <laughs> like, it's really not my problem. It's not my fault. Having disobeyed God, now Adam sees, thinks very little of charging his wife or even God with wrong. Like, I ate the fruit because she gave it to me. Th this is quite a change of tune from bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh in the previous chapter. Now he's saying, the woman you gave to be with me, she did it. She gave it to me as if she's a liability to his good standing before God. When he ate, he sinned. God then turns his attention to the woman, says, what is this you have done? Doesn't put words in her mouth. He says, what have you done? She followed Adam's lead with the blame game. The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
what have you done? The serpent, <laughs> right? <laughs> she's not owning it straight away. She's got a reason, right? And the reason almost can trump what you've done. But she admits being deceived and that she did eat. Her reason does not excuse or justify what she did. The answers of Adam and his wife, it reveals this human tendency to deflect guilt due to the influence of others. The problem is with sin is not that it's so alluring, but that we're so easily led astray with it because of the sin that's in our hearts. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 3, verse 12. This is a warning to believers and really anyone how we can easily become prey to sin's deception, how it seduces us to transgress, it tricks us. Because when we look upon the thing rather than to the God who has given the command, the God who is holy and righteous in a desire to please him and instead wanting to please ourselves, we will sin. It leaves us empty. It cuts us off from fellowship with God. Just like those fig leaves that were plucked from the tree, right? No life anymore. No putting it back on. No you know, taping it back or gluing it back. It's done. It's finished. It's a permanent thing that's happened. That's sin. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. This is to believers. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now for believers, being cut off is not cut off in death, but cut off in, in fellowship. That we have no fellowship with God. We have no connection to him through the spirit when we are choosing to walk in disobedience to him. So the, the words of the serpent, they appealed to the woman's desire, justified unbelief in what God had said. There was no question about what God had said, but did it, did he, was he telling the truth in his prohibition? You will certainly die. And sinning against God leads us to be hardened, having hard hearts that lack feeling and mind stubbornly opposed to God and his truth. And just like we can be under the influence of alcohol or drugs, we can be under the influence of sin. We can have hearts stirred to wickedness of unbelief, disobedience and believing the lie that God's withholding a good thing from us or there's greater blessing in sin than in obedience to God or that we're justified to do as we please, or we know better than God and should live as God. Now turn to Ephesians 4, 17. I include these because they are written to believers that we not be deceived by sin because we too can be tricked. Ephesians 4.17, Paul's writing to believers in the church in Ephesus. He's reminding them, you've been born again. You've been raised to a new life in Christ. You've been united as one, Jew and Gentile, in the church. That your lives are no longer to be marred by continuing in sin because God has saved you. He's washed you clean. He's brought you from darkness into light. You've gone from being aliens of the commonwealth of God to being adopted as children of God with fellowship with him. 
And you do not, Ephesians, have to wait for God like Adam did for the cool of the day when he came. But now we have the Holy Spirit within us who we can have fellowship with God continually by his grace because now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 17, Paul writes, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to walk, work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So apart from God, we were in sin. We were dead, but now we've been born again by faith in Jesus to new life and we're to walk in righteousness and holiness. Sinful lust, it's deceitful, because it can be, never can be satisfied no matter how much you feed it. It's like, like us, kind of, right? I'll eat lunch today, but probably I'll be hungry later. I'll be hungry tomorrow. You can keep feeding, but you'll still continue to need to be eating. Adam's eyes, and, and I find too that if you're eating a bit, like okay, let's say if you have this routine of eating a lot of ice cream late at night, the next morning you're gonna wake up hungry. It's like you're, you're building an appetite to be eating more than you need and probably sweet things that you should eat in moderation. Speaking personally, from experience. Adam's eyes, they were open to his nakedness. God's opened our eyes to see our sin, our need to confess sin and repent. We who have heard and have been taught by Jesus who renews us in the spirit of our minds. We've been grafted into the body of Christ, the church. Our lives are now new creations to be marked by righteous and holiness, not sin. So we put it off. We should not sin that grace may abound. Oh no. And God calls to you today. He says, where are you? Will you come to him wearing the fig leaves of your excuses, guilt, or works, or clothed in righteousness by faith in him. We're all exposed before God. He sees everything, as it says in Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If God asks you, what is this you have done? How would you answer? And as followers of Christ, we know that there are things there are sins that we should have not we should not have done but there's also good that we have left undone these verses they just show us instead of being marked by unbelief futility of our minds let's confess our sin let's repent in light of our savior jesus christ let's be believing in his goodness his grace and his mercy it's like so you have fallen God draws near to lift up those who humble themselves before him. There's this hope that we have in Christ that Adam and his wife did not have in that moment. Because he has come. He has brought atonement. 
We cannot rightly blame God, our circumstances, or others for our unbelief and our sin we alone are guilty of. And God exposes our sin because he desires to forgive. He speaks the truth so we might believe. The light of the world shines so that those lost in darkness can step into the light and be found. And not just for a moment, but forever in his presence. So come into the light. Continue walking in the light. And let's glorify and honor him by choosing to live righteously. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious and good to us. Thank you that you seek us when we're lost, when we're in the dark, when we've believed lies, when we've been taken in, we've stumbled and fallen even as Adam and Eve did. You draw near calling our name. You draw near with forgiveness and hope and an opportunity to be connected to you again through repentance and confession of sin and through faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would show us how big the problem is and how much we need to change and how beyond our strength it is to change on our own. Thank you that you're the one who connects us to that new life that's in Christ, that it's you who's given us the gospel. It's you that is our, our redeemer and savior and our maker that we can now know and have fellowship with. And we praise you, Lord, for this, um, this explanation and this example of, of how sin entered the world and death through sin and how we are not in any way different, how our need for forgiveness is just as great how the chasm that separated us from you by our sin is, is beyond our bridging. And thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus that we can rely on today through the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in all of us, uh, that you would speak to us and show us our need to repent, not just of old sins, but things now that our hearts and minds are not right before you. Lord, I thank you that you have not seen sin in your beloved because you have washed us clean. Thank you that we are free, and I pray that we would walk as free men and women by grace through obedience to Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.